Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. What a gift and a blessing as a congregation to, uh, to gather together and sing of the cross of Jesus Christ and what his blood has done for us to hear from one of our members who's given uh, her life in the application of that gospel for needy little babies and needy women and now to open up to Isaiah and declare again the great truths of the cross of Jesus Christ. As we open God's word, let's pray. Gracious God and heavenly father, We ask that what we know not, now you would teach us. And what we have not, now you would give us. And what we are not, even now you would make us. For your dear son's sake. Amen. Amen. We'll begin in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus, in a couple little sentences... Well, it might have taken longer in real life, but all Luke records is a couple little sentences. In Luke 24, Jesus summarizes everything the Bible says about him in a couple little sentences. Luke 24, verses 26 and 27. And I want you to listen as we see this to how Jesus summarizes everything the Old Testament says about him under two and only two categories. Luke 24, this is a conversation Jesus has after his resurrection. And in Luke 24, in uh, verse 25, Jesus says to them, are you slow of heart not to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Did you notice the two categories? They were right there in verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Suffering and glory. Humiliation and exaltation. One's wood and one's gold. The cross and the crown. One's the meekest of all animals, the lamb, The other is the most ferocious and mighty of all the animals, the lion. Nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere I think in the Old Testament, is the suffering and the glory shown as brilliantly as in our text, Isaiah 53. From Luke 24, even before you go to Isaiah, I'd ask you to turn forward to 1 Peter. Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter's almost at the end. It goes Hebrews, James, and then Peter of the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter summarizes everything the Old Testament says about the ministry of Jesus. And strikingly, Peter puts it in two and only two categories. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
Here, Peter summarizes everything the prophets have said about Jesus in two categories, the suffering and the glory, the cross and the crown, the humiliation and the exaltation, the lamb and the lion. I think nowhere are these remarkable categories seen more strikingly than in the song of the suffering servant at the end of Isaiah 52 and the beginning of Isaiah 53. If you turn back there, this is our second week in this text. And last week, we were able to go through it verse by verse. This week, I want to take what's said here and trace it backwards and forwards in Scripture because there are some lessons that we desperately need from seeing what this says about Jesus and what this says to everyone who follows Jesus. Jesus as lion and Jesus as lamb. You see in Isaiah, uh, the, the song of the suffering servant begins in Isaiah 52, 13. And it ends in Isaiah 53, verse 12. And the song begins in Isaiah 52, verse 13, with glory. It says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. It doesn't begin with humiliation. It begins with exaltation. It doesn't begin with a lamb. It begins with a lion. But then right away, we get into the suffering. You see in verse 14, that he's gonna be marred. You see in verse uh, two of chapter 53 that no one's gonna desire him. You see in verse three that he's gonna be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs and all the suffering of the Lamb of God for us. But then at the close of the song, in verse 10, it says he's gonna prolong his days. He's gonna see his offspring. He's gonna make many righteous and that he's gonna be exalted. So we have these two qualities, suffering and glory, humiliation and exaltation. And it's, it's been a great theme of preachers like me, of songwriters, of Christian authors to talk about Jesus as the lion and the lamb, as the one who is glorious and the one who is humble. I read a sermon last week by Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest preachers in America, maybe the greatest of all time from America. And he had this sermon about the lion and the lamb. And it just, I'll just give you one sentence from it. This was the provocative phrase that stays with me. Edward says, the beauty, the beauty or supreme excellency of our Christ consists in the right proportion of diverse qualities. The beauty of our Christ consists in the right proportion of diverse qualities, lion and lamb. You know, diverse qualities. If we were uh, putting together a football team, don't get me started on the Aaron Rodgers drama, I don't care. We, we would want our offensive linemen to be huge, immovable, and strong. We would want our wide receivers to be quick, and tall and to be able to move super fast. But I don't know how we could get one player that could both be an offensive lineman and a wide receiver at the same time. Or those of you who hate football, and there are more and more of you I find who hate football, diverse qualities in food. We're gonna go out to fast food. What do we want out of fast food? We want it to be fast. We want it to be ready. We want it to be cheap. And we want it to be good enough. <laughs> but if like we have, Amy and I go out to a 
very fancy dinner, diverse qualities. I'm not going to complain that it costs a lot. I'm not going to complain that it takes a long time. And I'm going to expect it to be absolutely exquisite. It's one or the other. Jonathan Edwards says, the beauty or supreme excellency of our Christ consists in the right proportion of diverse qualities. And I would say only in Jesus, only in Jesus are these diverse qualities. One, lion and lamb, marred, disfigured, and beautiful beyond comprehension. Humiliated, scorned, mocked, spit upon exalted so that the unfallen angels are almost blinded by the splendor of his glory. This is Jesus. So church today, we worship and admire Jesus. We worship and admire Jesus for all of this. We are in awe of Jesus because he is transcendent. Transcendence is the big theology word for he is above and over all. And we worship Jesus for his transcendence. And we also worship Jesus for his imminence. That's the big theological word for that he stoops down and he draws near to us. Like, 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 like pulling little kids in. We bow down before Jesus for his majesty. And even more so because his majesty is met with supreme meekness. We worship Jesus because he is sovereign and everything obeys him. He is sovereign and he has dominion over all things. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And yet at the same time, every time we turn a page in the Gospel of John, Jesus is saying, I submit to my Father's will and I obey him. So here's the majestic King of all who as the Son is obediently and subserviently following the will of his Father. We trust Jesus because, we could, because he calmed the storm. These full-time professional fishermen are freaking out because of the power of the storm, and Jesus calms it with a word. This shows us his power over creation. And yet when some of those same disciples get ticked off at the Samaritans, and they're like, Jesus, would you bring down some lightning bolts and fry them? Jesus says, no. I'm not going to use my power over creation to do that. He is so mighty, and yet he is so merciful. Church, this means that there is more to Jesus than you will ever exhaust. There is more to Jesus than tongue or pen could ever tell. And there's more to Jesus. Hear me, um, beleaguered, suffering, at the end of your rope, believer. There is more to Jesus than your current state of need. There is more to Jesus than you could ever exhaust in all of the needs of your heart, your spirit, your soul, your finances, your body, everything. If you run to Jesus, you will find that he is lion and lamb for you. I don't know if the, if the, the person in this room right now who is suffering the worst, your situation really is worse than everyone else's. I want to tell you, you're, you are not the single person in the universe who has finally found a situation that Jesus is not sufficient for. You're not that person because that person never will be. 
Jesus is more than enough for everything that could ever happen to you. All the sin you could ever commit, all the sin that could ever be committed against you. And when you flee to Jesus, when you are broken, when you are broken and you run to Jesus, you don't find him to be a lion against you. You find him to be a lamb to embrace you and at the same time, a lion against all of your enemies. When you are broken and repentant, Jesus is never a lion who, who yields his fangs toward you and has you run away. He embraces you. He says, come to me those who are broken, those who are humble, those who will believe. And so I want to trace what Isaiah 53 says about Jesus backwards and forwards in the Bible. We don't have enough time to do it all. I just narrowed it down to four. I think I had 12 when I started just writing with my purple pen on my yellow legal pad. But, but I, I, I put it down to, to four for this morning. The first one is that Isaiah 53 teaches us that the ultimate price was paid, so we have hope. The ultimate price was paid, so we have hope. One way to read Isaiah 53, and this is the way we'll mostly do it this morning, is to throw grappling hooks forward because Isaiah 53 is quoted many times in the New Testament. But did you know that another equally helpful way of reading Isaiah 53 is to throw grappling hooks backward? Because the more that I read this, almost every single thing that Isaiah says, he's picking up from Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Psalms. And so they all come in to that Luke 24, 1 Peter 1.10, that the scriptures have shown us how Christ must suffer and Christ must be glorified. We're mostly just going to go forward this morning because we just don't have the time to trace all of these things through, though it's so wonderful. The first thing to say is because the ultimate price was paid, we have hope. The ultimate price was paid. Isaiah 53 says that he bore our griefs, verse four. He carried our sorrows. Verse five says he was pierced for our transgressions. Verse six says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If the Lord has crushed the son for us, then how will the Lord God not also give us everything that we need. The New Testament authors often make this argument from lesser to greater or from greater to lesser. And they talk about if Jesus has died for us, how will he not also give us all things? The argument from greater to lesser you, let's say you have a rich uncle. Uh, your rich uncle, you, you, for your honeymoon, he's going to pay for your honeymoon. He's going to pay for the airfare. He's going to pay for the Uber driver. He's going to pay for the hotel. He's going to pay for all the food. He's going to pay for all the entertainment. And he's going he's gonna, to, you don't even have to bring a suitcase because he's just sending you with money to buy everything you need on your honeymoon. If he's going to do all of that, what are the chances that if before you left and your uncle pulled out a pack of gum and you were like, can I have a piece? He wouldn't say yes. If he's already doing all of that for you, what would it be? He's not, he's not the kind of uncle who's going to be like, no, 
I only have two pieces left and I want them both. This is the argument from the greater to the lesser. If he's going to do all of that, then of course he's the kind of guy who's going to share his juicy fruit with you. Well, this is the argument, though of course it's much more profound, that Paul makes in Romans 8.32. In Romans 8.32. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There it is, Romans 8, 32, the argument from the greater to the lesser. If he crushed his own son, if he crucified his own son, if he gave the blood of his son for us, how will he not also with him take care of everything else? That's why the point here is because the ultimate price was paid, we have hope. We have hope. Do you meet anybody this week? Who needs hope? I hope you answer that question, yes. I emailed with, texted with, talked on the phone with, and met face-to-face this week with multiple people who need hope. Seems like sometimes that's all I do. I hope you're invested in people's lives like that. Did you meet with anybody this week who needs hope? What is hope? Hope is the strong confidence that God has got me. Hope is the strong confidence that God has got this, whatever this is. Hope is the strong confidence that God loves me, that God's got me. And our hope is drawn from the cross of Jesus Christ because if he has given his own son for us, how will he not also with that give us all things? The ultimate price was paid, so we have hope. Second, in our suffering, we can follow Christ and endure This comes from Isaiah 53, verse 7, and it's quotation by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. Isaiah 53, verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is saying that in our sufferings, we can follow Christ and we can endure. Ephesians, or or, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7 is quoted in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'd ask you to turn again back to 1 Peter chapter 1. We were in there at the beginning of our sermon, or 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. It says there in 1 Peter 2, verse 13, it says that we're to be subject to authorities. It says that we're to honor God. And then he quotes. Uh, Isaiah 53 in, cha- in verse 22. You see it? Verse 22 of 1 Peter 2. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So there's a direct quotation from Isaiah 53, 7 in verse 22, and then an explanation of what that looks like when you encounter suffering in verse 23. You see the, the, the whole context. It's worth reading. Be, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, 
Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but even also to the unjust. This is where he talks about suffering. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that you might follow in his steps. And then we have our quotation from Isaiah 53, and then further application of it in following Christ's example in verse 23. Now take a moment here about enduring suffering for a pastoral aside with hopefully some wisdom in it. The Bible says here that there are times when Christians are called to endure suffering. The Bible doesn't say here and everywhere that in every circumstance, in every situation, every Christian has to endure suffering silently and not get out of it, right? I was in a meeting recently with some of our elders and pastors. We were talking and praying about um, wives who are abused. Taylor even talked about that, women coming out of abusive situations. The Bible says very clearly, it says here in 1 Peter, that God ordains the civil authorities to punish those who are abusive and wicked and violent. There are, there are authorities to whom a Christian can and should and even must appeal in situations of domestic violence, of sexual assault, and these kind of things. These are not things you endure silently. And in marriages, God ordains the, in Christian marriages in particular, God has ordained the church, hasn't he? So that if a, a husband is sinning against his wife, the, the elders of the church, if that husband's a covenant member of the church, the, the elders of the church go after him and admonish him to cease sinning against his wife in such a way and harming her. So there's situations where God provides, right? Authorities to appeal to and safety and escape and all of that. That being said, that being said, here, Peter's talking about a situation where a Christian is mistreated unjustly and he or, she, he or she chooses to follow the example of Jesus and endure it. The circumstances of situations uh, uh, require wisdom, when to appeal to authorities and escape, when to endure. But Peter here, Peter here is referring to some circumstances that Christians would suffer where a Christian would choose to intentionally endure that suffering as, as in the Lord Jesus and with the Lord Jesus. That's what he says in verses 20 and 21 and 22 and 23. Something that struck me this week as I meditated on this text was, I think it takes on deeper meaning when you remember this striking moment when Jesus said to his disciples, I'm gonna have to suffer and endure it. And one of his disciples said, no way, Jesus, you should never endure suffering. Remember which disciple that was? It was Peter. That was Peter. Peter's assumption that if you do the right thing, you never have to endure suffering was knocked out by Jesus. Peter here gives us not so much a theology of suffering as a, as a Christology of suffering, that there's, that there's the example of Christ and that he himself is with us. P 
Peter's readers, as far as I can tell from the historical context, were suffering persecution because of their Christian testimony, perhaps violent physical persecution and certainly verbal mistreatment. And to resist the temptation to retaliate, Peter said, don't do that. If you're a Christian, follow the example of Christ. Be Christ-like in your response to suffering. Peter's not calling us to a silence of fear. He's calling us to courage and trusting Christ. In our suffering, we can follow Christ and we can endure. There's a third truth from Isaiah 53 that we see, and that is that because we have an intercessor, and intercession is just a big word for prayer, because we have an intercessor, we have security. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 12, that because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What do you think that means? Well, we know that in the end of Luke, when Jesus was crucified, while he was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. I think that's a beautiful truth. I'm not... I'm not sure that that's exactly what this is referring to because the the context in 10, 11, and 12 of Isaiah 53 is the victorious resurrection of Jesus. So I think it's more referring to Jesus' intercessory ministry. In other words, after Jesus was raised from the dead, what do you do? Just go to a resort and kick it? Though scripture teaches that Jesus was raised for the purpose, for the purpose of ascending to heaven and praying for us. Do you like it when your friends pray for you? I wonder aggregately, I don't don't know how we could ever know it accurately. I wonder what is the number of prayer requests that will be shared under this roof today? Every one of those ABF rooms, like people are writing it down on notes that they're gonna leave and Brian's gonna have to pick up and vacuum later. They're writing it on whiteboards, like so many prayer requests. We love it when our friends pray for us. The Bible says that Jesus is the friend who prays for us. The Bible says that Jesus is the best friend who prays for us. The Bible says that in Romans 8, verse 34. It says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who was raised more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Romans 8 says, Jesus is right now interceding for us. Hebrews 7 verse 25 puts it like this. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7 25, he always lives to make intercession for us. When you sin and fail, when I sin and fail and I feel terrible, God never wants me to wonder what I should do about it. He tells me exactly what I should do about it. I should confess my sin and I know that in my own imperfect and incomplete confession of my sin, I have an advocate before the throne above. And that advocate is not dependent on my righteousness and being, being this or that for me. My advocate is there because he earned that spot by his suffering and he is now in glory interceding for me. This is my only security. I blow it as a Christian man, I sin, 
I blow it as a Christian pastor and I don't take care of people like I should. These things, I, I would have quit the ministry 2,000 times over if I didn't know what to do with all of that failure in my life. This and this alone is what I do with it. I say, I, I know I can't fix it all. I know I can't do it all, but I have an advocate. I have an intercessor. And he pleads for me. And my name's carved into him. So the third thing that we can see is that right now we have an intercessor. And fourth and finally, Christ won the victory. So we worship. Christ won the victory. So we worship. This is from 10 through 12 in Isaiah 53, which says, yeah, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And his soul made an offering for guilt. But then it says, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Verse 11 reflects back to the suffering out of the anguish of his soul, but then it gets to the glorification. He will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted righteous. He'll bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He'll divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered in the, with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Isaiah 53, verse 12 begins with a therefore. It says, because he was crushed and crucified, therefore, therefore, I'll divide with him a portion to the many. And I want to say, if your mind is a little bit like mine, you link the therefore in, in Isaiah 53, verse 12, with the therefore, one of the biggest therefores in the New Testament, in Philippians chapter two, which says that Jesus emptied himself, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then it says in Philippians two, verse nine, therefore God hath highly exalted him and given him that name, that one name, that superlative name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus was not leaving anything out when he explained to them everything that the scriptures taught about him under those two categories of suffering and glory. This is talking about his resurrection. I think to throw our grappling hook back, I, I think Isaiah, well, I know Isaiah was a man who knew his Bible. And so I'm surmising that Isaiah, when he wrote verses 10, 11, and 12 of Isaiah 53, he was meditating on Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11, which is a promise of the resurrection of Jesus, where Jesus says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand and there are pleasures forevermore. The Son of God, after his suffering, was exalted to the right hand of the Father, where there is joy and pleasure forevermore. And I know, I'm, I'm surmising that Isaiah was, was meditating on Psalm 16 when he wrote Isaiah 53, verses 
10 and 11 and 12, but I know that this is what the later New Testament authors do because in the very first gospel sermon in Acts chapter two, when they proclaim Christ was crucified and now Christ is risen, in Acts chapter two, verse 22, the first time they're preaching the gospel, they say Jesus, was su Jesus suffered. He was delivered to be crucified and killed by the hands of godless men. And then they say in Acts 2, 24, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it wasn't possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. You won't abandon my soul to Sheol or let me decay. You won't let your Holy One see corruption you have made known to me the paths of life. You'll make me the fullness of gladness in your presence. So church, I just, I just hope that you can see how at least these four little points that I tried to imperfectly make this morning, how they coalesce together. Church, you need to know, know that the ultimate once for all price has already been paid. And church, you need to know that if and when you are called to suffer, you have Jesus with you in the suffering. He's been there and he is there with you. And not only that, but whatever's happening in your life, you can know that right now Jesus is praying for you. He's making intercession for you all because he won the forever victory through his crucifixion and resurrection. And he's now at the right hand of the father. And what he's doing there is caring for, caring for his church. And that's each and every one of you. Receive that and trust Christ more fully now than you did an hour ago. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, let your presence and let the promises of Isaiah 53 and how they are applied in the New Testament scriptures, let these precious promises give us hope. Let these precious promises soothe the hearts of those who suffer. Let these precious promises give hope and confidence to those who would waver if they looked only within. Oh, let us look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, have mercy on your little lambs, what we know not. We trust that by the opening of your word, you've taught us and what we have not. We trust by the abiding ministry of your Holy Spirit, you'll give us and what we are not. We trust that by the very reality of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, you would make us for your glory in our lives. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.